All right, we need to do two things today. Do over there. Uh, we need to finish off cellular, cellular anatomy, which won't take very long at all. Okay, we just got a couple of things we got to knock out, mostly with regards to the cytoskeleton. Okay, um, and then we're going to start um, enzymes once again, which is kind of strange, you might think, because we already talked about proteins once already when we were talking about those four different kinds of biomolecules that you're made of, right, which are? No. Those are the four most abundant elements in, in biological systems. So talking about the four, most, uh, the four biomolecules that you're made of. Carbohydrates, lipids, proteins, and nucleic acids. Thank you, Akon. You guys were, were so confident in yourself and you were responding. I didn't want to cut you off in the midway, so I thought I'd let you go ahead and finish that and then tell you that you were wrong. Those four, those, those other four, right? Uh, those four things. And we talked about proteins being a component of them. And we kind of subdivided them into structural proteins and enzymes, okay? All of them being polypeptides, all right? Um, so usually when I'm talking about a structural protein, I'll just call it a protein. When we're talking about uh, one of these polypeptides that does some kind of biochemical thing, okay, I refer to it as an enzyme, all right? So what, all, all, all are technically proteins. However, all are not technically enzymes. So um, we need to talk more about proteins a little bit. Um, and this is not so separate from, from that conversation. Even though we're ending cellular anatomy with skeletal, uh, cytoskeletal elements, these cytoskeletal elements are, in fact, proteins. So I guess you could just kind of say it's, it's protein day. Okay. First of all, we'll talk about uh, some of these structural proteins. And then we'll start talking a little bit about an introduction to enzymes anyway. Okay. Um, what do enzymes actually do? How do they operate? How do they work? And we need to go through these in a little more detail because we're going to start getting ready for things like photosynthesis and cellular respiration. Um, if there's a reaction that's happening on Earth, okay, either in plants or in animals or in fungi or in bacteria, it is most often mediated by an enzyme. Okay? The enzyme is not making any part of the reaction happen that couldn't happen on its own. It's just increasing the rate by millions of times in some cases. Okay? So it, it makes these reactions happen very, very quickly okay, through a variety of mechanisms that we'll get into um, next time. Right? Uh, but to really understand what's going on with things like photosynthesis and aerobic respiration fully, uh, when I say fully, I mean enough to get an A on the next exam, um, you need to have a firm understanding about enzymes and what enzymes are actually doing and how they operate, um, especially when we're talking about converting energy, which is essentially why we're undergoing photosynthesis and aerobic respiration in the first place. Okay? So chloroplasts, these photosynthetic elements, right, are converting this electromagnetic energy into glucose. Okay, um, and in order to do that, they need to get this energy out of the sun, right, from the from their environment to do so. Okay, and that whole process of converting that energy from one form into another is enzyme mediated. All right. Likewise, you're converting energy out of the glucose molecule into things like kinetic energy and things like that, and that process is enzyme mediated. Okay, so and really to really understand what's going on with these biological phenomena, photosynthesis, aerobic respiration, anaerobic respiration, and things like that, we really need to know what, what's going on with the enzymes specifically. How do they convert energy, and what does it even mean to convert energy? And what are the rules that govern it? Okay, so I'll talk about that today. But first, uh, let's wrap up cellular anatomy a little bit, and these proteins. This is going to be a good, uh, good preparation for lab this week, being uh, the cell lab. So this week in, in, in lab, you look at all things cellular anatomy, so this will be, this will be a, good, a good part of that. Um, there are essentially three different kinds of 
skeletal, cytoskeletal elements. Um, and they're doing the same thing that your endoskeleton is, right? They're, they're providing some mechanism for internal support, okay? Whereas you deposit this calcium phosphate endoskeleton to give yourself three-dimensionality and things like that. The cell is doing the exact same thing. It's not depositing calcium phosphate, though. It's building structural proteins, okay, to do that. So if you do a dissection of a pig, like you'll do in Biology 102 if you decide to take that, you can cut out a body part like a lung or the liver or a kidney or whatever, and you can hold it in your hand, okay? When you're holding this body part in your hand, it doesn't just kind of glop down into a non-dimensional flat ball of mush, right? It retains its structure, all right? Um, but you know that phospholipids are these really squishy, icky, soft, soapy membrane kind of things. Right? Uh, so you know from that, that just based on the phospholipid alone, that if you held an organ in your hand, it should flop down into a mass of nothingness. Those things don't have a lot of structural stability. There must be something inside of those cells keeping them together and keeping them uh, not rigid, right, but dimensional, okay, providing some sort of internal skeletal framework to the individual cells to keep them in their shape. And those are protein-based cytoskeletal elements. And students usually love these kinds of slides like this because uh, there are three different kinds, right? I could say something like, there are three different kinds of cytoskeletal elements. What are each of them made of and what are their properties? Okay, so uh, there are three, which makes it a good test question, yes? Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Uh, we'll go through each one of these in turn, uh, but in short, uh, we have the microtubule, which is, like the name implies, a hollow tube, okay? We have the microfilament, which is not a tube, it is very thin, uh, coiled, uh, double coiled, essentially chain of really small spherical proteins, okay, which we'll talk about in a little bit, and the intermediate filament, which is more of a braid, okay. So uh, each one of these different kinds of cytoskeletal elements is an excellent demonstration of quaternary protein structure. Remember quaternary structure? What are the four levels? Primary structure is? Sequence of amino acids, absolutely right. Secondary structure is somebody else. I know you know it. Let me give somebody else a turn here. Secondary structure is? Oh, come on, y'all. Folds and coils. Yeah, absolutely right. Thank you, Megan. Tertiary structure, which is? 3 3D arrangement. And quaternary structure, which is? Multiple 3D arrangements. Multiple 3D arrangements, just like these. Okay, all three of these are quaternary structure. So each one of these little individual units right here is a tertiary structured polypeptide, right? We're going to put it together, okay, into quaternary structure. Now when we do that in all three cases, the quaternary structure uh, result is more than just a bunch of tertiary structured things, right? There are properties that this quaternary structured element has that the individual tertiary structures don't, right? So the way that you arrange tertiary structured uh, proteins gives you another level of complexity, another level of, of, of organization and properties, which is an excellent example of emergent, emergent properties, right? Uh, you know, properties that emerge with the arrangement of something that might be unforeseen, right? So, yeah, we're not done with all that, are we? No, we're not done with all that. Okay, we'll start at the beginning. Microtubules. Of these three different element types, it is the largest. And that's nothing more than factoid trivia. Uh, when I ask you on an exam to compare and contrast these three different things, which I can virtually guarantee I will do eventually, right? Um, when you say microtubules, the interesting thing is not that they're large. 
All right, uh, so don't put that don't put that as an earth-shattering conclusion. That's probably the least important thing out of these, but they are technically speaking the largest. Okay, what you could put is that they are composed of the protein called tubulin, which is very handy for you, right? Um, it's a nice name for this protein. Yes, because the microtubule, right, is made of tubulin. Handy, right? Oftentimes in biology, things are actually named after what they do. Okay. So each one of these little uh, kind of dumbbell-shaped tertiary-structured proteins is a molecule of tubulin. So somewhere in your genome, right, you have a sequence of A's, T's, C's, and G's that form a gene, okay, that codes for the amino acid sequence to give you tubulin. And you're going to obviously make a lot of copies of that uh, in order to make a large microtube. Uh, these microtubules are essentially responsible for three uh, reasonably different kinds of, kinds of behaviors in your cells. They're involved in shape, okay? They form a nice, uh, a nice skeletal framework to keep your, your cell in a three-dimensional arrangement, okay? Um, has anybody ever been out to the Loudoun campus anytime at all? Have you been into the Waddell building out there, the, the kind of newer one? It's the one with the, with the red uh, tubes in the, hall, in, the, in the stairwells. It's, it's kind of the newer one. It's the taller and newer of the two buildings out there. And those stairwells out there, if you're ever out in the Loudoun campus, which you may or may not do, take a look in the stairwells of the Waddell building, okay? Um, there are these big red, big red, bright red tubes. I mean, they're, they're red like your jacket, okay? Really bright red things. Um, oftentimes, students don't pay a lot of attention to them. They have a lot of art classes in the Waddell building. And so when you see these things in the stairwell, you think it's some sort of artistic uh, effort that's being made. And it certainly is. It's a beautiful color. But those tubes in that stairwell are load-bearing elements, okay? You can hold a lot of mass with a tube, more so than you could if you had the same amount of material and crunched it down into a single, uh, into a single bar. If you have a single bar, okay, of metal, let's say this long, that weighs a pound, right? You're going to be able to bend that. And if you stand on that, it might bend in the middle, okay? If you take that same length, right, and the metal composed of that and expand it out into a hollow tube, Okay, you're going, to be able to hand, you're going to be able to withstand a lot more force, a lot more stress on that tube than you did before. You're not bending any longer. Okay, by standing on that, you're essentially trying to compress the top side and trying to break apart the bottom side, right? And it becomes a much more durable, rigid structure by trying to do that. So you can take the same amount of material, and instead of having a pipe, if you can expand that out into a tube, it will withstand more forces by not having to, without having to add any more mass to the elements. It's an engineering trick more than anything else, right? Um, so they make really, really good load-bearing structures, which are handy. Tubes work well in engineering. Um, they're used for motility, okay? When we're talking about motility, uh, we're talking about uh, the cilia and flagella that are oftentimes found on eukaryote cells. Now, if you ever take a bacteriology or a microbiology class, you might learn that some bacteria have flagella as well. Um, that is a completely different kind of flagella. Okay, um, eukaryote flagella and cilia are very different than prokaryote flagella. Um, in order to get a tubulin fiber to be modal, right, uh, and to result in motility, it has to be arranged in a neat and new uh, framework structure. And this, I'm going to switch to the document camera right here, is called uh, one of the most astounding things in biology, the 9 plus 2 microtubule arrangement. Have you ever heard of that before? That's okay. Vector source, document camera. Let me get my light on here. What's motility? Um, the ability to move. 
something can move, it's modal. It can, you can, a cell can move around, okay? Use it as a, as a way to move. You use things like your arms and your legs, right? Um, the cells will use cilia and flagella for the motility elements. So it's called the 9 plus 2 microtubule arrangement. Okay, we good? blow out the, all right, good. Um, when we look at how these microtubules are arranged, right, it's called nine plus two based on the, the arrangement. So you can start with two little microtubules uh, just kind of organized right next to each other. And those, are, those two microtubules are essentially going to form the center of this arrangement, okay? So this is the two right here, these two in the middle. The nine, okay, refer to nine pairs of microtubules that go around that one in the center. Uh, thusly. So here's a pair, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine. This one's kind of bad. There, right? So you have one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine little pairs of microtubules and two more in the middle. So it's called the nine plus two microtubule arrangement. Now, if you're gonna use something like this in order to actually move and locomote, okay, well, if you look at how these things are moving, they're either flapping back and forth, okay, like that, almost like flippers, okay, or it can kind of move around in a propeller-like way. Now, when it moves around the propeller-like way, this arrangement is not spinning, okay? It's not on a, on a rotatory motor of any kind of way, right? What happens here, to get this thing to, to look like it's spinning around, let's say we take this set of two right here and we shorten it momentarily, okay? And then we take this one over here next to it and then we shorten it. And then we shorten this one. And at the same time, we, it, we start shortening these things in this round direction. After we shorten it, we lengthen it back out again. So this one shortens. And then this one gets shorter and then that one lengthens. And then that one gets shorter and then like that one lengthens. And then this one gets shorter and that one lengthens. And that goes around and around in a circle. Okay, what's, the, what's it going to look like when that happens? It's going to be kind of whipping around in a, in, a, in a circle. It's not spinning, okay? It's not rotating. It's kind of whipping around, like you took a rope and you just kind of swung it around, right? Um, and that can result in propulsion if you're in a fluid, if you do that, okay? Or it can just kind of shorten this half and then kind of shorten that half and shorten this half and then shorten that half and it can wag back and forth, right? So you can selectively uh, shorten and lengthen each one of these microtubule fibers here, this one, that one, that one, or that one, or that one, or whatever, right? And make this thing move in a lot of different ways, okay, for propulsion, which is kind of neat. What do you think? You agree, kind of neat? Yeah. Even if you don't think it is, you should say yes. Right? Good. All right. So that's the motility part of it. So this is one of these, right? So the 9 plus 2, right, each one of these elements in the 9 plus 2 microtubule arrangement is one of these entire structures. So there's a lot of protein there, okay? It's pretty big. And cell division. Eventually, you're going to go through the process of mitosis and meiosis. You're going to have to go through this process of separating chromosomes and chromatids out in the cell, right? If you're going to separate your cell into two, you want to get all the DNA on, of, for one next generation cell on one side and all the DNA on the other. You have to move those chromosomes to opposite sides of the cell. 
In order to do that, there needs to be some kind of framework over which those chromosomes can move. That framework is microtubules. Okay, so you can use like you can use microtubules for a lot of different things, right? Oh, which is kind of handy. You have three things you need to do right here. You need to hold the shell shape together. You need to use something for motility. You need to use something for cell division. You have one one structure that you can do all three of these different things with it based on how you arrange it and what you do with it, right? Which is kind of kind of nice. You don't have to make three different things. You can use the same structure for different purposes. Handy. More about microtubules and cell division when we get into mitosis and meiosis. So like I said, tubes, right? Uh, they form skeletal elements that have those load-bearing properties of a tube. They're really, really good for withholding and withstanding forces, bulk forces. Um, so good for cytoskeletal elements and all that kind of stuff. Here's a, just for eye candy purposes, here's a small eukaryote cell, um, the paramecium, I believe with a lot of cilia over it. So you can actually see them. You can see these individual little cilia uh, coming out of the side. Each one of those little cilia is one of these big 9 plus 2 microtubuli arranged uh, structures, which it's waving back and forth and pushing off against the water with. All right, so covered in the thing, which is why they can zip around so fast. All right, so that's the microtubule. Next, we have the microfilament. Okay, um, As the microtubule was the... Uh, largest, the microfilament, is the smallest. Um, it is composed of actin, okay? So whereas the microtubule is made of tubulin, the microfilament is made of actin, okay? This is one half of the active elements of your muscles, okay? The other part being myosin. We'll talk about that in Biology 102, um, is what I usually say when that kind of thing happens. Um, so each one of these little uh, round doublet spheres are, that are wound around each other in this case is an individual molecule of, of actin. Okay? So when you make a muscle out of this, you'll have another uh, protein called myosin that will interact with these actin molecules right here. And when you need to shorten a muscle right, to flex something, the little myosin uh, head will kind of come over, grab the actin molecule, and it'll pull it, okay? um, shortening the whole, the whole structure. Okay? So this is a part of that. Okay, the actin molecule is one half of that muscular contraction. Whereas the microtubule was providing a framework, okay, a skeletal framework uh, withholding bulk forces and that kind of thing. Okay, the microfilament okay, is usually found um, in regions of the cell where you want to actually get some movement or some, uh, some shaping going on. Sometimes you want to deform the shape of your, of your cell. Um, if you're going to go ahead and undergo cytokinesis, cell division, you need to eventually separate one half of the cell from another, right? We move the chromosomes apart using the microtubules. Now we need to actually split the cell in two. Is anybody wearing a hoodie today with strings? Oh, you got one on, right? So what you can do, right, uh, you can wrap a fiber of actin around your cell with some myosin, essentially make a single muscle strand right there, and you can contract it around that cell membrane, and it'll kind of pull that cell, mem cell membrane together until it uh, joins in the middle and blip, you know, the one cell will, will split off into two. So it's like taking your, the strings on your hoodie and pulling them really, really tight, like Kenny in South Park. You know, you can, you can essentially cleave off, right, your cell in, in the center by contracting that, that actin filament, all right? So it's, act more, it, it, it's more on shape, right, the shape of the cell. You can change the outward appearance of the cell by using these actin molecules. Okay. And it's sort of named like what it does too, right? The tubulin makes a tube, actin kind of acts, kind of. Is that a stretch? Am I going too far with it? A little bit, right? 
sort of tells you a little bit about what it does. So taking part in movement, right, formation, okay, the formation of the, of the cell. What does the cell actually look like, right? And what is the shape of the cell? And third, the intermediate uh, filament. If the tubulin is largest and the microfilament is smaller, then the intermediate filament is intermediate, right, and it's in its shape, right? Um, it's not everywhere. In fact, it's probably the least common of the three. Um, and it has a completely different arrangement and structure from the other two. Um, most commonly, the intermediate filament is keratin, okay, keratin fibers, which are then wound and braided around each other. Okay, where do you find keratin? A couple of places in your body. <laughs> in, in your stomach, you have to eat carrots, right? Um, so what, what regions of the body might you expect to have a lot of keratin? Like fingernails, right? Hair, right? Um, are there any long braided structures that are kind of durable, that are protein-based? Not on me anymore, not on Freddie anymore, right? Akunksha's got some. Kelly's got some. Right, um, Rapunzel, Rapunzel, let down your keratin, right? So you can climb out the window and you know uh, scale the walls and things like that. Yes, you can scale a wall with human hair, right? A very durable, very tough thing, right? Keratin based. All right. So this is, as you can see, some tertiary structured long strands, okay, that are being wound and braided around each other to give it quaternary structure, um, and they are shaped like. Cables, right? They have the small components braided together like cables. They act like cables, okay? And as you know, cables are notoriously horrible at withstanding uh, a load. I mean, if you have a cable stretched from one side of the room to another and you're standing on it, it's going to bow and sag in the middle and things like that. So it's bad at withholding those, those lateral forces. However, it's extremely good at what? Tension, right? Um, we can have a tug of war with several tons on one side and several tons on the other with a small cable, right? And it'll be able to withhold that ten those tension, that stretching, that tension elements very, very effectively, all right? Um, and anytime you need something in your cell to be held together with tension, the intermediate filament is the way to go, okay? Being able to withhold that. Not holding lateral forces very effectively, right? But you can really use it like a cable, okay? Think of suspension bridges and uh, the cables that you use to hold up power lines and things like that. All right, so just like we went through the process earlier with cells, with the Golgi and the smooth ER and the rough ER, I was asking, in what parts of the body would you find a cell that has a lot of rough ER, for example? Uh, we can do the same thing here with um, each one of these cytoskeletal elements. Where in your bodies might you find uh, microtubules or microfilaments? Um, there are some of these places in every one where we have them. Right? There are some of these structures that are only found in men. There are some of these structures that are only found in women. All right? So in men, here is a microtubule. Yes? What is this? This is a sperm cell. Right? And here is a lovely 9 plus 2 microtubule arranged filament right there, which the sperm cell is using to locomote to the big egg. Right? Ladies, what is this? What are these? Ladies? Guys, you could, you know, men can recognize sperm. Women? Eggs. Okay, where are they? These are not in the ovary. Well, you do have eggs in your ovaries, right? Uh, where are these eggs right here? What is this surface right here? Ladies, ladies, ladies. 
It's the sixth grade health class stuff, right? How do your eggs get to your ovaries? How do your, how do your eggs get to your uterus? They get there through the, this is getting creepy quick. You five, right? Should we, fallopian tubes, right? What happens in the fallopian tube? Eggs are passed along, right? On the cilia, cilia fibers, okay? From the ovaries out to the, um, out to the uterus. Um, fertilization will usually happen up here in the fallopian tube somewhere, okay? And then the cilia will go ahead and pass that egg the rest of the way down the, down the pipes, right? To the ovary, or to the, ovary, um, to the uterus while, while the fertilized egg will embed in the uterine wall, okay? If you have a problem with these things, right? And that fertilized egg embeds in the fallopian tube wall, it's referred to as an ectopic pregnancy. You've heard of that before? No, no. Uh, yeah, the, the, the egg will, uh, will embed into the fallopian tube wall. Um, and there's no good ending to that, right? Um, medical science will intervene, right? Um, if you know, start to get large, I mean, you start getting a lot of pain in the region, right? And uh, as that baby starts to grow larger and larger, eventually things are going to start rupturing. This thing just doesn't, this thing just doesn't stretch like that, like, like, like the uterus does, right? So um, it's not going to end well, but it can be caught and intervened in just fine. Right, so oftentimes when you have ectopic pregnancies, that's a cilia problem in a fallopian tube somewhere. Not able to pass those cells down the fallopian tubes into the uterus where they will then um, embed into the uterine wall, which is more biology 102 stuff. Okay. Um, it wouldn't be called a C-section, so much as it would be called uh, aborting, right? Um, uh, and for, in, in a life-saving way for the mother, right? Um, baby's not going to survive this. I mean, it's going to get taken out long before it's viable, right? I mean, after you get to two or three months, it's already, you know, starting to get pretty good sized and you're starting to exert some forces on that fallopian tube wall, which a fallopian tube wall can't, can't withstand. And the last thing you want is rupturing, right? So it's, uh, it's coming out, it's coming out. So, uh, but there, but it, like I said, it can be caught and everything can be fine later on. Um, and you'll know when it happens because it will be fairly painful and you'll go to the doctor. Trust me. Everybody has uh, cilia in this part of the body. What do you think this is? It's not a tongue, but it, I could understand why you would say that, right? It's close to the tongue. <coughs> Where? In the throat. <coughs> esophagus, absolutely, right? Um, trachea, esophagus. Uh, what's it doing? <coughs> <coughs> what is it doing? <coughs> How much more of a hint do you need? Goodness sakes. <coughs> um, when, you're, when you're teaching classes for the first time, right, when you kind of start getting in front of the classroom, um, one of the things you very quickly have to start ignoring is the constant symphony of small little coughs that your students give while you're teaching. Right? I teach a class of about 40 students um, on physical geology class. And while I'm talking on PR, I constantly hear this <coughs> <coughs> kind of sounds that you get right, all day long. Uh, and you just kind of have to learn to just kind of ignore that, right? But you guys do it too without even knowing. It's one of those things that you do without even thinking about it. Um, like you're kind of moving your leg back and forth right there, you know, and I do it too. It's unconscious things that we do, right? And that little cough that we do is the same thing. It's these unconscious things that we do. That was a little more than I was hoping for, right? But, but that, that's an excellent example right there. So you're breathing all of this kind of stuff in from the environment. Um, 
you know, dust mite feces, dust mite exoskeletons, small bits of hair, the stuff that's coming off of your dog and your cat, right? There's all kinds of junk all over the place in the environment that you're breathing in, right? Um, and you're breathing this stuff into these nice wet respiratory passages in your throat and in your lungs and things like that, and they obviously stick. So it would be nice to have some structures that you could actually use to constantly kind of clean that stuff out, right? Moving all of that stuff, that gunk that you're accumulating in your lungs, sorry, um, up and into, you know, let's see the look on, on her face. Um, moving this gunk up into your throat where you can just kind of consciously or semi-consciously just kind of, <coughs> kind of cough it back up. Uh, the gross thing after that is what you do after you <coughs> cough it up, you swallow it, right? So you just kind of send it down the other pipe, right? Uh, but eventually it goes out the other side so it's all well and good. It goes out one way or another, right? Everything does. Um, but these little structures right here, right, these little cilia are constantly migrating things up towards the mouth, right, grabbing stuff from the lungs and moving into the mouthward direction. That is, unless you smoke, in which case they're not, okay? Um, so these lungs were coughed up by somebody who smoked a lot, obviously. Um, they're the color of road tar because they're full of road tar. Okay, that's the kind of stuff, that the tar substances that come off of cigarettes as you burn into the same stuff that's used to pave the street. Okay, um, uh, and those lungs have accumulated with that kind of stuff. All right, um, so there are two things going on here. You're sucking in a lot of soot, a lot of chemicals, a lot of uh, petrochemicals, a lot of organic uh, things like that, a lot of hydrocarbons um, into your lungs, and they're getting stuck on there, right, uh, in your lungs. And at the same time, you're paralyzing these cilia. Okay, so on the way down to the lungs, these will be paralyzed, okay? Um, so at the same time as depositing a lot of gunk in your lungs, you're paralyzing the mechanism for migrating stuff out of your lungs. So you kind of give yourself the double whammy, okay? If you stop smoking, that would be a good thing. You'll live longer eventually in the long run, okay? And you won't get winded when you walk up and down the stairs. Um, after a couple of uh, weeks, maybe a month or so, those cilia will start to grow back, okay? And as those cilia start to go, grow back, you'll start coughing like you've never coughed before in your life, right? As all of this gunk from in your lungs is starting to get migrated out, right? And after a couple of years go by, your lungs can, in fact, revert back to a completely pristine, healthy state, right? But you just got to lay off the cigarettes, right? Um, like I said I, before, um, I, I really don't care if you smoke or not, but at least you should know what you're doing to yourself, right? Um, so both of these things are happening. You know about the accumulation of the gunk in your lungs in the process. You may not know about, but you might appreciate now, the paralyzation of the, of the tracheal cilia, okay, at the same time, preventing you from being able to cough this stuff up after you, after you bring it into your lungs. Is that just like a specific chemical in cigarettes? Any you combust a plant, right, you're going to get some resin tar compounds coming out of it anytime you do it, right? So it's nothing specific to, to, to cigarettes or, or tobacco even, right? Some, some plants are more tarry, resiny than, than others, you know, but it, it's always going to be a byproduct of plant combustion in one way or another. Black, sooty tar. Great. Let's, okay, so let's take a cigarette break, right? And any plant would. Any, any plant would. i got to switch PowerPoints right here. Hang tough on me. Yeah, um, if you want to, yeah. I think you are just trying to find a way out of it. There isn't a way out of it. The it's just bad for you. Already, the body's not really supposed to take in smoke to your lungs, like, like any time. Well, it's okay if it, if it does, right? I mean, as long as you survive it, because, you know, you have these cilia that can, that can migrate that kind of stuff out, right? Yeah. It's just the judicial and, uh, and regular application of such things uh, that is bad. I mean, um, they'll stay paralyzed for, 
you know, 12, 15 hours after a cigarette. You know, so if you're smoking more than one cigarette a day, right, you're losing any ability during the course of a 24-hour cycle to actually recover your cilia. And they will never recover, right? Once you hit that, that sweet spot, right, where you never give your cilia time to, time to come back into it and, and unparalyze, um, then you're just going to start accumulation and you're going to stop moving anything out of there at all. Um, so it, it depends on, you know, this isn't a public service announcement, but you know, like I said, at least you should know what you're doing to yourself. Right. Um, but they will recover. I mean, I used to smoke half a, half a pack a day when I was an undergraduate and for a long time in graduate school. Um, and now I'm doing 15, 20 miles a week, right? Your lungs can recover completely. So take that for what it is. All right. Um, so that ends that. And this is the beginning of that next section that I was talking about, this whole thing about energy. Okay. And I want to start talking about energy um, really in, in kind of specific terms. Um, which is kind of weird because the more specific you talk about energy, the more vague it actually gets. And you'll understand the paradox of this in a bit, right? Uh, energy defined by any physicist out there off the cuff, if he had to give his garden variety uh, company line answer, he would say energy is the capacity to do work, okay? So if I can do work, okay, that must mean that I have energy. energy. If I have energy, that means that I can do work. If I cannot do work, that is because I have no energy, right? Um, if I have no energy, I can do no work, okay? So what is work? Work is energy. No, work is energy. It's the result of having energy. We need to get out of this circular definition eventually, though, right? Um, if you ask any physicist, again, the company line of what work is, right? Um, it's the application of a force, okay, um, over time, okay? So if I'm going to apply a force, right, a force like gravity, a force like electromagnetism, right, um, there's a, a force acting on this right now. It's called gravity. It's holding it down, right? Um, if I'm going to move this thing across the table, right, I'm going to apply a force using my finger over a distance, right? I'm going to push this thing across the table. Am I doing work? Yes. Yes, I am. Um, am I being paid to do this work? Yes, I am, right? So it well works out. Um, so applying a force over a distance, right, is always going to be considered work in some way or another, right? It doesn't have to be a lot of distance. It doesn't have to be a lot of mass, right, uh, that I'm actually moving. As long as I'm doing that, though, that is work. And in order to do that, in order to move this, you know, mass across this distance and apply this force, I have to use energy. Where did I get that energy from? I did not get it from my finger. Yeah, I ate some Cheerios or something this morning for breakfast, right? I got it from somewhere else. Energy is always obtained from somewhere else, right? It is. Um, for reasons we'll get into in just a bit. So um, when we think about energy, uh, you can kind of categorize it in a lot of different shoeboxes, artificial shoeboxes, artificial categories, but categories nonetheless. We can think about energy uh, based on the, sh the, the shape or the position of something. Right? If, it, if something has energy because of the way that it's shaped or because it's positioned in space, okay, we're going to call that potential energy. Okay? So here's an example of potential energy right here. It has energy based on its position in space. If I want to increase its potential energy, I'd go up with it. If I wanted to decrease its potential energy, put it down. Right? So I can change its level of potential energy by changing its position in space. 
kinetic energy, energy of motion. Who said heat? You're absolutely right. Energy and or can, motion and heat are the same thing, right? Um, so yeah, you can use those interchangeable. Kinetic energy, either the energy of heat or the energy of motion, right? Chemical energy, um, the energy that you can store in a covalent bond or an ionic bond for that matter, right? Um, you can call that chemical energy. So in this uh, picture right here of this horseman on horseback with his bow and arrow, there is potential energy here. Where do you see the potential energy? It is in the bow. There's a lot of it in here, right? But uh, it, the, what the intent is, is that uh, it is in the bow. This bowman here is taking this arrow and he has pulled that thing back. And now that bow, right? Not the string, not the arrow, right? The bow. This thing right there has been changed in its shape, right? Into a way that stores a lot of energy. This is one of the most uh, efficient energy converters that's ever been invented, is the bow. Okay. Um, now this bowman would prefer to convert that potential energy of that bow into kinetic energy by let go of the string, right? As much of that potential energy as he can in that bow, he wants to convert into kinetic energy in the arrow and send it off that way. And when I talk about this being one of the most efficient energy converting mechanisms uh, that you can ever possibly imagine, you can take an arrow. We can go out in the parking lot and we can try this, right? We can take an arrow, right? And I can say, throw this arrow as hard as you can. How far would it go? Not too far, right? <laughs> or I give you a bow and I say, okay, shoot that arrow as far as you can, right? It's going to go, right? Um, the, this converts energy much more effectively and efficiently than your arm does. Trust me, right? Um, simple experiments can demonstrate that. You can spend a lot of energy pulling that arrow back, right? Um, you can spend a lot of energy pulling your arm back to throw that thing, right? When you release them both, it will go farther out of the bow than it does out of your arm, which is an which is a characterization of efficiency of energy conversion more than anything else. Same amount of energy is applied, right? More of it's converted to kinetic energy with the bow and arrow. Okay, so potential energy. Changing the shape of something or the position in space can be, uh, can be used to store energy, which is going to be important. Kinetic energy, here's a bunch of unfortunately sweaty men in a marathon of some kind or another right here, all in motion, right? So they're converting as much of their energy that they can into kinetic energy as efficiently as they can. Right, in order to, to try to win this race. Right? So a lot of kinetic energy here. Uh, and a lot of chemical energy in the stuff that you put in your car. I put some in my car this morning. Okay? Uh, when you do this, right, if you need to add some energy to your car, eventually right, your car is going to be a kinetic energy converting device. You want to convert as much energy as you can into kinetic energy. That's sort of the point right, of your car. Okay, um, you get that energy to move out of the gasoline that you put in it. And I'm not telling you anything you don't already know. Um, where in that chemical energy molecule, right, is that energy? Well, talking about a lot of hydrocarbons here. Yeah? Fossil fuels, that kind of stuff. Where's the energy in that? In the carbon atom itself? It's in the bond. There you go. Right? There is energy in that atom itself. To get at it, you have to split that atom. And we call that nuclear energy, right? We don't use that kind of stuff, right? Just we as a society use it. We as an individual, we're not doing that biologically. That would not end well, right? Um, we're liberating chemical bond energy, right? Um, with the ATP molecule as our energy storing device and our energy carrier, where's the energy that we're going to use? Where specifically? In the ATP molecule, where is that energy? What say it again. It's in the bond. Thank you. Which bond? 
between that second and third phosphate, right? This ring a bell? Vaguely? You're just going to say that so I can move on, right? Excellent. We'll come back to this. We'll come back to this ATP thing. All right. So earlier on the first day of class, I think I kind of mentioned, and there were some chuckles out there, and I was serious, though, um, that on the exams, if you ever violate the laws of the universe, you're going to get points deducted. Okay? Uh, we have to exist within the confines of the known scientific universe and its laws, right? And so you can't break those laws. Okay? If you break those laws, like I said, you're going to get points taken off. So an example of how to lose points on an exam is by saying that mitochondria make energy, right? That is in direct contradiction to the first law of thermodynamics, right? Which states that the total amount of energy in the universe remains constant, okay? You cannot create energy. You cannot destroy energy, right? All you can do is convert it from one form into another, okay? So mitochondria is not making energy. Mitochondria is converting energy from one form into another, right? And a lot of people, I mean, just like I said, natural selection, not survival of the fittest. Someone in this room on the next exam will tell me that mitochondria makes energy. You will do it, right? And the way that I have those questions oriented on the exam is very, very funny because one question will be, what are the two laws of thermodynamics? And they will say, energy cannot be created and destroyed. And then I'll say, what is the role of the mitochondria? And then I'll say the mitochondria make energy, not one inch below their previous statement, right? That energy can't be created or destroyed. Do, mito do you have an organelle that destroys energy? Does that sound stupid? Yeah. It should sound equally stupid to say that you have an organelle that makes energy, right? They're, both of those statements are equally stupid, okay? You can't destroy it. Why the heck can you make it, okay? So don't do that, okay, Megan? Good. It's my girl. All right. So the total amount of energy in the universe is going to remain absolutely positively constant. You can't create it. You can't destroy it. All you can do is convert it from one form into another. The forms being these kind of shoeboxes that we went through earlier, kinetic potential, blah, blah, blah. All right. So what can you do with energy if you have it, right? You can take those reactions, okay, that convert energy, and you can couple them to other reactions in the body that require energy. What kind of reaction, and you should be able to answer this question already, what kind of reactions in the body require energy? Generally speaking. Which is an example of what? You're absolutely right. If you synthesize a protein, what do you do? Let's say that you're all amino acids, okay? And we're going to synthesize a protein out of you. What are we going to do? We're going to have a ribosome, we're going to grab each of you and we're going to start lining you up, okay? Right now, are you diffused in this room? Look around. Are you diffused? Yes. You're pretty well diffused. If I make a protein out of you, are you going to be diffused? No. No, you're all going to be really highly concentrated in one place in the room, right? What is that an example of anything we've talked about recently? Remember that whole diffusion thing? Yes? Yeah, so we're, right now you're diffused. If I make a protein out of you, you're becoming undiffused, okay? Uh, right now you're pretty entropic, right? You're pretty spread out around the room. If I make a protein out of you, I'm going to be really condensing you in one place. Right now, you're at pretty even concentration. 
If I gather you all together and shove you into a protein on one side of the room, there's going to be a very high concentration gradient. So I'm taking you from a low concentration gradient to a high concentration gradient, which goes against these diffusion laws, okay? Which means if I'm going to do that, that's fine, but I'm going to need energy to do that. Um, if anybody in here has kids, anybody kids, anybody kids? If you have a one-year-old or two-year-old kid, three, oh, let's go with three, right? Um, and you can put them in a perfectly organized room with a bunch of toys in it, close the door, wait about 15 seconds, right? Open the door back up again. What's the state of that room going to be? It's going to be chaos. You're absolutely right. Those toys are going to be completely diffused around that room, right? Are they going to undiffuse by themselves? No. What do you have to do? Go in there. You've got to clean it up, and that requires... Energy because it's work. Absolutely right. Okay. So we're thinking about these things the same way, right? We're thinking about these things the right way. Um, if you remember, uh, somebody else understood this process, right? Coupling energy uh, reactions that liberate energy with things to, to make work happen, right? James Watt, okay, in the 1700s understood this, right? Essentially, the inventor of the steam engine gave rise to the Industrial Revolution, right? Which was more than anything else an exercise in mechanization. So I'm going to build a steam engine, right, and it's going to be used to convert energy, right? You throw some coal in it, and you light it, right, and you boil some water, and the water is going to be used to turn this little turbine-y thing, right, and this thing is going to spin. That's an excellent conversion of chemical energy, right, into spins a little thing, motion, kinetic energy, right? The little thing that spins is going to turn a belt, okay? And the belt is going to take that energy over to the other side of the factory, where it's going to work a loom, okay, and you can make some nice cotton sheets, right, or you can run a cotton gin with it, or you can run any number of things with it, right, a sawmill, okay. So there's an energy converting process here in this factory, right, and it's converting chemical energy in the coal, okay, to kinetic energy in the little thing that spins, right. You couple that reaction with the belt to the part of the factory where the work actually gets done, okay, where you build things. Okay, where you then get what you want out of it, which is usually something going from some kind of low concentration to high concentration process in your own body, right? But you do the same thing, okay? Your energy converter is not a steam engine. It's a, we just talked about this, mitochondria, right? Where you break that glucose molecule apart and make a lot of ATP, right? Yes? Okay. Now, in order to make that protein, I'm going to need to have a lot of ATP. That's my fuel source, right? So whereas in the factory in Victorian times, we had the belt that linked the energy converter, okay, to the process, here we have ATP, which is linking the energy converter over to the building process, okay? That represents our way to, com to combine those reactions together, to link those reactions together, okay? Good? Excellent. So we can make it do chemical work, we can make it do mechanical work, electrochemical work, we can, make, uh, we can make voltages out of things, right? So all of these things here, you're gonna see examples of when we go through photosynthesis and aerobic respiration, right? These, these reactions that we're getting ready to start into, okay? So this coupling, right? We're talking about coupling and energy conversion within the mitochondria to a process in the body like building a protein, right? And ATP is how you couple those two things together. And good energy carrier, just like the belt in the, in the factory. We good? Okay, so think about that, right? Think about yourselves as a factory, right, doing the exact same processes that anyone would. 
All right. So ultimately, if we think about just the Earth, right, energy is coming in, okay, uh, to the Earth via the sun. Now, we can think about these laws of thermodynamics and energy and diffusion, things going from high to low concentration and things like that, right? And it seems that on the Earth we have a, a counterexample to that, where on the Earth we've gone from very diffused kind of things up to these really highly organized concentrated energy forms, right? It seems like the evolution and appearance and evo uh, of life on Earth kind of runs counter to these diffusion laws because it goes in the other direction, right? There's complexity on the Earth today, right? And things are of higher energy than they were back in the day, right, uh, four and a half billion years ago when the Earth formed. However, no more so than the amount of energy that has come out of the sun, okay? So that's essentially what's limiting what we on Earth can actually do. How much energy is coming out of the sun, okay? How much of that energy is being captured and interacting with the Earth? How much of that energy is actually being captured by photosynthesis and converted into glucose, okay? Those organisms that do that, right, to do that electromagnetic radiation capture and conversion into glucose, we refer to as producers. And they're typically green, right? Mo mostly things like plants, uh, but it can be photosynthetic bacteria as well or algae, things like that. Um, photosynthetic protists in the open ocean, all right? So they're doing this conversion, okay? Now what we can do, we can come along and we can eat those producers. We call those things consumers. Okay, um, and they're getting that energy that the plant went ahead and captured and they're converting it into ATP to do other things like grow and make new babies and things like that, right? Um, so on the earth, the sun is the primary energy source. You can, there's more energy coming out of the core of the earth, right? Radioactive energy and things like that. It's not really biologically available to too many things. Hydrothermal vent fauna is notwithstanding, right? Uh, most of the life on earth is fueled by <laughs> photosynthesis at its core. Okay, that's where the energy coming into the Earth actually is. All right. We good? So the sun is essentially our limiter onto what you can actually do on the Earth, the amount of energy coming in. We can't make any energy, right? All we got to do is convert it from something else. This is, what, this is the something else that we're converting it from. All right. Which brings us to our second law of thermodynamics, Okay. There are only two that we need to know for this class, by the way. The total amount of energy is flowing from high energy forms to forms lower in energy. We've talked about this already. We call it diffusion. Okay. That's the only thing that's actually happening in the universe anywhere at any time is energy is diffusing. The universe is getting bigger and it's getting cooler and its energy is spreading out. The universe is tending towards disorder. Okay, we call that entropy. The universe is getting more entropic through time. Eventually, the universe is going to be really, really big. It's going to be really, really cold, and it's going to be maximally diffused. Okay? At that point, absolutely nothing is going to happen. Period. Okay? Uh, you can only have interesting things happening as long as there are concentration gradients. Okay? Um, if diffusion is the only thing that ever actually happens in the universe, right, once things are maximally spread out and maximally diffused, then everything that the universe does will kind of cease to exist and cease to be, right? All reactions will stop, right, uh, and there'll be no more life in the universe or anything like that, okay? So the universe is tending towards this disordered, uh, unorganized 
state, right? And you can fight that for a while. You tend towards disorder, right? And you spend about 2,000 calories a day to keep that system organized and keep putting yourself back together and things like that. That's about how much it costs for you to do that, right? Eventually, you will die, right? Um, or when you, when you cease to be able to reorganize yourself, right, you will essentially die. And then you will kind of disperse back out into your subsequent elements and things like that and become one with the soil and regenerate it into something else as that energy can, continues to flow and disperse, right? So anytime energy is flowing, right, it is diffusing from a high concentrated form to a low concentrated form. So anytime anything happens, that is energy going from a high concentrated form to a lower concentrated form. So as I take this thing, right, and I push this across the table, okay, work is happening, yes? This is energy going from a high concentrated form to a low concentrated form. I'm not changing the amount of energy, I'm converting it, right, and dispersing it and diffusing it from one form into another. Neat. All right. Whenever I convert energy or wherever you convert energy, that's never going to happen in a 100% efficient way. Okay? Every time you convert energy from one form into another, from potential to chemical, from chemical to kinetic, whatever, right, you're going to lose a lot of it okay, along the way. Not much of it, usually less than half, is actually going to be converted into what you want it to, right? even if you're shooting that bow. All right? Um, so as energy diffuses, it does so inefficiently, so to speak. Right? So if you want to take that bow and you want to fire that arrow as far as you can, right, you would prefer 100% energy conversion. Right? You don't get that. Right? Anybody shoot a bow a lot? You can take that thing and you can fire it, you can fire it, and you can fire it, and you can fire it, and you can fire it. Right? Shoot 10 arrows off pretty quick, and you can feel that bow, and it's going to be kind of hot. Yeah? Right? Or if you're uh, of the military sort, you can have your submachine gun out there. You, can, you want to convert as much of that chemical energy as you can, right, with that, uh, you know, the, the chemical energy in the, in the rifle round, right, to kinetic energy in the bullet. You shoot that thing, you shoot that thing, you shoot that thing, that barrel's going to get pretty hot, okay? You drive here, right? You're converting energy from one form into another, chemical energy in the gasoline into kinetic energy. Moving those pistons in that engine, the engine gets hot, right, any time. Right, you convert energy from one form into another, you're going to lose a lot of it as heat. That's how energy is lost right, um, through this inefficiency. Your mitochondria are good energy converters. They work at about 39 38% efficiency. So about 60% of the energy in that glucose molecule that is in there that is stored is lost and not even converted into ATP in the first place. Right? So, and we consider that pretty good. We consider that pretty good. right? So the cut that the universe will take any time you attempt to convert energy is the, the, it's not a bank, right, with, uh, with interest. It's a loan shark, right? Every time you do a conversion there, it's going to take over half of the energy uh, of that conversion, and it's going to take it from you. And what you're left with, you can do some cute things with if you want, like drive your car, right? But most of that energy is always going to be lost as heat. And you feel that in yourself. Is it 98.6 degrees in this room? No, but... It is in you, right? Uh, that's part of this loss of, of heat, right? This energy conversion, right, uh, is lost as heat, warming you up to an absurdly high temperature, 20 degrees warmer than it is, 30 degrees warmer than it is in this room, right? So the universe is tending towards disorder. Always remember this, right? And no energy conversion is ever 100% efficient. There's always going to be some loss at every conversion step as heat, okay? So we, you need to, when you think about something happening, right, in photosynthesis or in aerobic respiration or in anything, 
right? You have to remember both of these thermodynamic laws at the same time, right? Um, and I'll show you an example of how you can do that. So let's remember both of these at the same time. So here we have an example, right, that shows you, uh, like I said before, this is either a woman or a hippie. I'm not sure which, right? Uh, on, on the top of this, uh, on the top of this cliff, kind of bad hair on, on this individual, right? Um, and this person is uh, an adrenaline junkie, evidently, and they are going to bungee off of this cliff. Okay, so they got some bungee wrapped around their leg, right? Um, and we can think about where the energy is here, where it's being stored, where the forces are applied, right? Um, there's potential energy of gravity, okay? And in this case, it's pretty high, right? You can almost consider this potential energy uh, based on its po this person's position with respect to gravity, okay? Pretty high in this case. There's no kinetic energy here, is there? No, this person is not moving. Right? They're static at the top. Um, e, elastic energy. Right? We might expect to have some elastic energy in that bungee cord. Okay? There is none right now. Right? It's not being stretched at all. It's not holding any, any, any energy there. Um, and T, thermal energy, temperature. Okay? What is the heat of this system? So we're going to have this person who has all of its energy stored potentially by interaction with gravity, and we're going to off the cliff. Kick this person off the cliff, right? And there they go, falling, 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 right? Um, the potential energy due to gravity is dropping, right? The kinetic energy is rising quickly at 9.8 meters per second squared, right, as their velocity increases. Um, we're not storing any energy in the bungee yet until it starts to stretch. There's still at zero there, but we are starting to heat things up a little bit, right? We're converting energy, so we are losing energy as heat, okay? Now, the cord is fully stretched. They're about a foot away from smacking their head at the bottom of the gorge or whatever it is, right? Um, thankfully, the bungee is just perfectly lengthened, right? So they're not going to do that. Um, uh, hair is responding to, uh, to, the, to the explication of forces here, as you can see. They're all always stretched out at the bottom of that. So the force due to gravity or the amount of potential energy left due to gravity is zero, okay? They're pretty much at ground level or very, very close to it. Um, they're stopped. They're at that really fully stretched part. They haven't started to spring back up yet, right? So kinetic energy is now again at zero, right? So this is now low. It was high. This is now low. This was high. We can't lose energy. Oh, we just have to move it somewhere else. So where is it now? It's in the bungee cord, right? In the, in the, uh, in the energy of elasticity, right? It's, it's being stored in that bungee. Right now, you could do a lot of work with the energy stored in that bungee, yeah? You could. You could, right? Yeah, you could, absolutely. And uh, we've lost some energy, though, so we're still uh, increasing the temperature. Um, if you feel the temperature of this bungee, it's gone up considerably, okay? Uh, and this person will then start to equalize and equilibrate with all the forces being applied, right? There's a little more gravitational energy, right? They've been pulled back up a little bit off of the ground, so there could be a little bit of work done if we cut the cord and got some energy out of this person as they fell, right? Um, they're at a stop. So again, no kinetic energy here, right? They're, they're non, not moving. There's a little bit of energy of elasticity held here, right? Just from the weight of the individual pulling on it at rest. And we lost a lot of the energy to, to heat. That cord is pretty hot at this point, right? And the individual might have accumulated some energy as well, right? So at any point in this entire process, have we changed the overall amount of energy? No, we haven't, right? It's just changed form from one into another. Okay? At every step along the way, we conserve 
energy, right? We don't lose any of it. All we do is shuffle it around from one place into another. And every time we did that, we lost some as heat. Cool? So biological systems are going to work the same way, right? You're just going to shuttle energy around from a high concentrated <coughs> form to lower concentrated forms. And each step along the way, right, you're going to lose some as heat, right? And you might be able to do something interesting somewhere else. As that energy is converted, you don't want to lose it as heat, right? As you convert that energy from one form into another, rather than losing it as heat, you want to capture as much of it as you can to make ATP, right? If you can capture that energy as ATP instead of as heat, then you can take that ATP and send it somewhere else, right? James Watt did not want to lose that energy as steam. He didn't want to lose that energy as heat. Certainly, his steam engine heated up, right? He wanted to convert as much of that energy as he could to turning that little thing, right? Because that's where you can get biologically meaningful stuff out of, by turning that little thing and moving that, that belt over to the other side of the factory, right? He lost a lot of his energy as heat, yes? And you do as well, right? Um, that heat that you lose along the way, right? You want to capture that and make ATP out of it at every step along the way. Good? The products, the stuff that you end with, all right, and all the intermediate stages that you go through, okay? The individual at the top of the cliff tied to the bungee, the individual after the bungee dangling, storing some elastic energy and releasing a lot of heat, and all the stages of falling in between, right, the intermediates, all the steps that you go through along the way. To get this reaction to progress, right, you use things like energy carriers, ATP, okay? You use enzymes, structures upon which these reactions happen, right, which don't, like I said, don't make reactions happen that wouldn't normally happen, but they increase the rate. Cofactors, right, um, some enzymes, a lot of them actually, require other small tidbits of molecules to be plugged into them in different places before the reaction can actually progress, okay? Transport proteins, right, to move things across cell membranes, to actively transport protons and proton pumps across cell membranes and things like that, right? So in order to make this energy conversion process to make ATP happen in a biological system, we need all of these things. We need some reactants and we need a lot of helpers. If we have the reactants, if we have all the helpers that we need, we can go through the intermediates and make the products, okay? Which, for us, when you think about aerobic respiration, the reactants are <gasps> oxygen and Cheerios, whatever glucose you want, right? Um, and we do something to those oxygen and the Cheerios. We combine them, okay, and we combust them, sort of, right? Um, and we get a lot of energy out. The products are <gasps> CO2 and heat and ATP, right, that we can use to fuel our muscles and things like that. That was a bad jog, but you get the point, <laughs> right? Um, and I can do that because I have all of these, right? I have energy carriers like ATP. I have enzymes that I can use to make those reaction happen. I can make voltages in my mitochondria using transport proteins. I have cofactors to turn on and enable all of those enzymes along the way. So we'll kind of pick apart, start picking apart photosynthesis and aerobic respiration a, a little more, a little more carefully now and a little more directly. So any kind of a reaction where the
product has more energy than the reactants, okay, you're going to have to make up that energetic difference from somewhere, okay? Here we have the photosynthetic reaction in cartoon form, very, very simplified. We're going to take six molecules of CO2, as you know, right? This is what plants do. Six molecules of water, and you're going to combine them to make one big molecule of glucose. And as a byproduct, you make six molecules of oxygen that get, kind of get thrown out into the, into the environment, okay? If you look at all the uh, combined chemical bond energy of all the covalent bonds in this entire molecule, right, it is considerably higher than the chemical bond energy in everything down here. Where does that extra energy come from? Where does that extra energy come from? You can't make it. You don't get it for free, right? So we need to add energy to these things in order to make that. Where does it come from? You're guessing? It's the sun. It's the sun. Yeah, you don't have to guess that. You can tell me, right? What are plants doing? Where do they get that energy from? Green, out there, chloroplasts, electromagnetic radiation coming in, right? So in order to make this, okay, you need more energy than these things have, okay? The plant gets that energy from the sun. So you take these things plus electromagnetic radiation from the sun, combine it all together, and you make one of these, okay? This is a reaction. Jessica, you look... Okay. She's, she's doing that to me, right? Um, uh, so this kind of reaction where energy goes in, okay, you need to add energy to make this happen, is called endergonic, okay? Energy goes under the reaction. Good? Endergonic, <laughs> right? Um, if you do the opposite reaction, we have a nice high-energy glucose molecule. We combine it with, back together with the oxygen. We break it apart. We make a lot of <laughs> CO2, right, and a lot of water in the process, right? What we started with, right, this glucose molecule has a lot more energy, as you already know, than the CO2 in the water does. So where does that energy go of this reaction? comes out of the glucose, right? And we use it to I'm either smacking my brow in frustration or I'm giving you a hint. Heat, right? A lot of heat's going to be produced and Yeah, absolutely. ATP, right? You end up making ATP out of it. So that energy that is liberated from breaking this thing back apart again, right? You want to make as much ATP as you can, right? Which is about 39% of it right? Um, and the rest of it is lost as heat. So the energy came in via photosynthesis in the endergonic reaction. This energy came from the sun, right? The energy that you get out again, right, that you're making ATP out of ultimately came from, say the same thing, the sun, the sun right? So earlier when I was talking about the sun being the, the ultimate energy source for everything that happens, when you're eating the Cheerios, right, that energy originated with the sun. When you put that gas in your car, right, those are fossil fuels. A lot of dead phytoplankton, right, fell to the bottom of the ocean floor, right, accumulated over time, got lithified, got squeezed, got cooked, got compressed, um, was extracted out by ExxonMobil, refined in the gasoline and put into your car. Now you're converting that into kinetic energy. The ultimate source of that kinetic energy was the sun. 
the sun, right? Just the sun 300 million years ago, okay? So it does not obey laws of time and space in that regard, right? The energy that you're using to fuel your car is still solar energy, so you already have a solar-powered car. So you don't need to buy a Prius, right? You're all good. The energy that you're using to drive that thing is already solar in its ultimate nature. But everything is, right? But, but everything is, as I, as I mentioned. So uh, there's a whole chapter about this dedicated in your textbook. I would read it. It's short, um, but it's a good read, but it talks about all of these kind of things. So next time we'll talk more about enzymes, and we'll come dangerously close to talking about uh, aerobic respiration and photosynthesis even more.